And welcome to another edition of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have another brilliant guest who's going to uh, walk us through some of the things we need to know and a new book that he has out, Differ We Must, but none other than St- Steve Inskeep. How are you feeling today? I'm doing okay. Thanks very much for the invitation. No, I'm glad to be here. How was your holiday? Are you geared up? Are you walking into the holiday season upright? What's going on? Talk to me. I'm doing okay. We had a good Thanksgiving. I was able to take my kids up. My wife and I were able to take our kids up to see uh, the uh, in-laws. And we were in upstate New York and uh, got to spend time there. And it was, it was nice. It was okay. Even went for a Thanksgiving run, although it was a little chilly up there. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that at all. But <laughs> <laughs> It's not for everybody. It's not. So we start each one of our shows. My show is unique because each one of my shows, we have our guests answer the same first question, which is to walk us through the arc of their career. So talk to us about each one of your journalistic career stops after finishing Moorhead State to the work you do now, winning edition and up first. Yeah, absolutely. I would even start a little before Moorhead State because my high school in Indiana had a radio station. And I got my start there as a sportscaster doing football and basketball games, play-by-play and color. Um, and then at Moorhead State, I first worked for public radio, public media is what I do now. now. Although I was, again, a sports guy. I was doing like a regular sports show. Um, it was only uh, late in my college years when I had an opportunity to spend my junior year in New York City which for me was like a foreign exchange program as a kid from Indiana, you know. And um, I I worked for WBAI, a famous kind of progressive activist public radio station. And I I, uh, ended up meeting some people and making some connections and ended up uh, working for a public radio station after college in Newark, New Jersey, WBGO. I was the morning news guy for them. And uh, it paid... It didn't pay nothing, but it didn't pay very much. And I was living in New York and, you know, it's kind of expensive to live in New York. So I was just working all the time. I would do these freelance gigs and anybody who wanted me to cover a story for the radio, I I would do it. And some of my work was for NPR. Um, And then by 1996, they hired me full time. I've now been so. So since like the past century, it's a little embarrassing to say. Since the past century, I have been at NPR, uh, and they've had me do a little bit of of everything. I covered uh, plane crashes. I covered the Pentagon. I covered uh, presidential campaign. I covered Congress. Uh, I covered uh, the wars after 9-11. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, eventually, they made me the host of Morning Edition, which I've now done for a bunch of years. And so I get up in the middle of the night. I do this early morning program, but I share the job with other co-hosts. So there are many days that I'm not on the show that I can still go out and report and see the world. I was just in Israel a few weeks ago, and I've just been in a lot of different places across the country as well. And I have this job now where basically I can call up almost anybody, almost anybody, uh, from the total, totally, ran- I mean, from the president of the United States on down or up, depending on your point of view, to a random citizen. I will sometimes at election time uh, go around and just knock on doors and talk to anybody who will talk to me, which is a, a thing I bet you've done at some point in your life uh, more than once. And and it's it's a great thing to do. It, it keeps you grounded. It keeps you learning. 
one of the things you can tell since you've been working at NPR since the last time the Cowboys won a Super Bowl, apparently. Uh, <laughs> we give our listeners some good frame of time of perspective here. there, yeah. <laughs> Is you, your experience, it, it really it shows through one of the articles before we get to different we must that I got to ask you about. Um, and one of your recent pieces was entitled The Lack of Strategy is the Strategy, uh-huh. where you submit that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a feature and not a bug of the regional yeah. dynamics, where the lack of a clear endgame is kind of the point. Can you elaborate a bit here? And where does the Biden lack of strategy being the strategy put this administration who want to see it inspire peace or two-state solution? It puts Biden in a difficult position. My argument is that there are a number of Israelis and have been for some time, and I think Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, is likely one of them, who uh, it's not that they actively want to be at war all the time, but they do not see any peace solution that they think would be in Israel's interest or that has a structure that they would like uh, that would have Israel in control of the land that Israel wants to control. They don't see, uh, or, or that they think would work because they don't trust the Palestinians uh, to keep a peace agreement is the way that they would phrase it. But in any case, you can go back to Ariel Sharon, one of Netanyahu's predecessors as prime minister, who was pretty explicit about this. You can look at a lot of things that Netanyahu has said over the years. And if your view is that uh, peace solution is not really possible at this time, then your best outcome, your best option is to continue on as, as you are. And that seems to me to be what Israel was doing before October 7th and trying to gain some advantage, trying to make peace with other Arab uh, nations, other nations in, in the Arab world, uh, with, trying to effectively go around the Palestinians rather than make peace with Palestinians making certain offers to Palestinians for economic betterment, but not really pursuing in any serious way a two-state solution. That was their strategy, was not to have a strategy for, for, for the end game. I think that is still their strategy, not to have a strategy. And that does create some awkwardness for Biden, who, as we know, has totally supported the Israeli side on this, but would like them to resolve the conflict, would like a two-state solution. I mean, my, I, most people, I was not very old. I think I might have been nine or 10 at the time. But I think the closest we actually got to that ultimate goal was uh, Camp David with uh, the 42nd president of the United States, William Jefferson Clinton. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Palestinians walked away from that. And yeah. it, it was supposedly a, a really good land deal for all involved. And the Palestinians walked away. So maybe Israel's skepticism is rooted in history. I don't know. Well, I mean, there is some history there to overcome. And if you're looking at Hamas uh, as the leading, most powerful partner among the Palestinians, partner is maybe not the right word for that, the, the actor you'd have to deal with. Um, from Hamas's point of view, any agreement with Israel is a bad deal because right. they expect it all. They expect all the land to come to them. That is their ideology. That is their belief. Uh, and that if you're Israeli is something that is real that you have to wrestle with. It is not just a few terrorist leaders who have that point of view. It is a broad political movement among the Palestinian populace and something you would have to wrestle with if you were going for a two-state solution. We should remember there was an Israeli prime minister in the 90s, you referred to to him, Itzhak Rabin, who took a step toward peace that led to the creation of the Palestinian Authority, this entity that's somewhere short of a state, 
Um, and Rabin was assassinated by an extremist from among his own people. And any Palestinian who made a deal with Israel for a two-state solution would have to consider that risk, consider that possibility among his or her own people. There is a very strong feeling on this issue, to say the least. To say the least, especially when you're trying to negotiate with a a political body that does not view political body slash terrorist organization. It doesn't view that you should have a right to exist. It makes it fundamentally yeah. difficult to yeah. negotiate. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. After that heavy discussion, let's talk about your new book, Differ We Must. What is it about and why did you write it? Yeah, um, I have been interested in Lincoln all my life. I grew up in Indiana where Abraham Lincoln spent a lot of his youth. So you learn a lot about Abraham Lincoln when you're a kid growing up in Indiana. Um, and in later years, I've written histories, history books based on the 19th century, about the 19th century, and learned more and more of the context of Abraham Lincoln's time and finally got to the point where I felt that I might have something to say that was distinct and different. And what I try to do uh, in this book is tell Lincoln's life story through his meetings with people who differed with him, who disagreed with him, people of different races, people of different genders, people of different class backgrounds, people of other kinds of backgrounds, and above all, people who just disagreed with him, who had an argument to, with him over slavery, thought that he was too radical, not radical enough, disagreed with him about other issues. I got going on this topic because I thought that it would be a way to illustrate American diversity. Uh, the country was incredibly diverse then, as it is now, even though it was a period when white men had all the power and virtually all the attention, but the other kinds of people were there. Um, and I thought it would just display that. The more that I got into the topic, I realized it wasn't just diversity or difference that was the story. It was disagreement. It was the arguments that you have in a severely divided society. That's what was relevant then that makes it feel relevant right now in America today. Definitely does. Unpack the title for me. Uh, yeah. Even though the, the backdrop for the book is historical. Do you think, and you just said it, I mean, when you were writing it, I'm, I don't know if you thought this would be the moment we were in at this time, but it seems when I was reading it, it seems to be like they <laughs> were really timely. Oh, well, thank or you. Maybe I it's evergreen. That. Maybe it's no, evergreen. It's, it's evergreen. It's evergreen. And it is also for, for, for now. Um, I am a journalist, so I was covering the news in the early mornings and then spending afternoons often doing the research for this book and writing. And the news uh, I don't want I don't want this history to be about today. I mean, it's about the 19th century. You try to tell the truth of the story that you find in the documents. But 
uh, the the news showed me the relevance of this topic. It is about now. Um, I mean, it's about uh, even like conversations that people just had at Thanksgiving or maybe having again at the holidays at the the end of the year uh, with your you know your uncle at the dinner table who is wrong about everything so far as you're concerned, won't shut up about it. What do you do with that person? Um, and I think Lincoln offers some suggestions. I mean, you, you're probably not going to change that person's mind, but maybe out of 10 things, there's one thing you can work with this person on. And maybe if even if there's zero, you maybe you can learn something from that conversation. And that's the kind of thing that Lincoln struggled to do and had to do to build political coalitions. Thinking about that and the lessons from Lincoln, you know, one of the things that I would say about this cultural political movement we're in is that people are afraid of of differences. They're afraid of change now. Um, and maybe and I think that fear is driving a lot of the conversations that we're having fear of the quote unquote browning of America. But how would Lincoln look at this movement, particularly from the right that we find ourselves in today? Oh, well, first, I just want to say, I feel like I'm going on. So you just shut me up when I'm going No, on. please. I mean, I, I but, but there, there, when you talked about the demographic change, I mean, you're alluding to something. I, I totally agree with you. The, the, the underlying trend in a lot of news stories is the way that America is changing demographically and people's fears and anxieties about that change. That drives a lot of news stories or is a factor in a lot of news stories. Uh, and the first thing I want to say, is that that was also true in the 19th century. America was changing demographically. Now, it wasn't exactly a browning, as we would say, but what was happening was the northern states that had banned slavery were growing rapidly in population thanks to immigration and other factors. The southern states that had embraced slavery were not growing nearly as quickly. And so the Norse political power was increasing. Um, and that led to two realities. One was Southern paranoia, that they were going to be outnumbered and outvoted. And the other was Northern impatience with this institution of slavery that a lot of people had in some way or another accepted because it didn't directly affect them, but th that they didn't really like. And a moment finally came in 1860 when the North managed to unite and marshal enough of its political power to win the presidency. Um, and that led the South to try to leave the Union, deny the results of the election, in effect, and start a civil war. That anxiety is a powerful force then and now. Um, and Lincoln, I think, shows us some examples of kind of how to hold it together. Um, mm. As someone who won the election of the presidency, one of the things that he said was, my job is to run the machine as it is, meaning I'm not going to let someone just change all the rules and break up the country because they want to. There is a constitution, there is a union, there are laws, I'm going to enforce the law. Um, Lincoln also understood that in order to hold the country together, he needed a majority, meaning that he needed allies that he disagreed with, that he thought were wrong, even wrong about slavery. He even wanted slave owners on his side if they were willing to be loyal to the union. Because if you're going to have a republic, if you're going to have a democracy, you need a majority on your side. And he did everything that he could even to deal with disagreeable people. He also, of course, had to work to keep radical abolitionists on his side. That was easier by the time of the Civil War 
But there were periods in his career when they were suspicious of him mm-hmm. and he was suspicious of them because he was an extremely careful talker and a big believer in the rule of law. And there were abolitionists who believed in defying unjust laws having to do with with slavery. So he had to find ways to accommodate, deal with, be patient with, listen to, or just outmaneuver um, people he disagreed with to keep keep them on side. So I think many people are gonna read this book, students of history, people who just want to be more in tuned and understand what we're seeing right now. History always repeats itself. I was having a conversation with a, somebody the other day about 1984 and Grapes of Wrath and how appropriate those books are for this moment. Wow. But if you had 30 seconds with the president and he asked you what about Lincoln's presidency he should incorporate in his own, what would you tell him? Um, I, it may take me more than 30 seconds to think of that, that 30, 30 seconds. Um, I think that first, I, let me just say, I think Biden uh, somewhat consciously tries a Lincoln style of politics of building uh, coalitions. And, I would agree with that. And and you know, clipping his wings a little bit, not going for the most radical things that he might go for in order to keep a keep a coalition keep a coalition together. Um, I guess I would encourage him to look at Lincoln's patience, his view of the long term, um, and his view of the the, the value of. Uh, effectively unpleasant people. I mean, I think this is something, that, honestly, that Biden understands. And you may think he's a great president or a terrible president, um, but he actually got in trouble during his last presidential campaign, as you may recall, because he boasted about being a young senator and working with segregationists in the mm-hmm. Senate. Um, I mean, there's just this reality that the person who is wrong still has a vote because it's a democracy. And so you try to get what you can out of them. And I would encourage that. I guess if I was going to say something that that, that might be an insight, um, Lincoln reasoned with people. His speeches are way too long for the 21st century. Way too long. Way too long. Way too long. But amazing. He wasn't like tugging at people's heartstrings and saying, here's a story of a little baby that I kissed. He, He was actually working through with logic, why people should see the end of slavery as something that was in their interest. And I guess I would call Biden's attention to that, that that, that confidence that you could reason with people and that just enough people would listen. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians 
who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. A couple more questions before I get you out of here. But one of the more fascinating questions about this, because I think your book is so brilliant and so well written. Wow, thank you. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how we, we, we're living in the dumbing down of America right now, but who's your audience for this book? Um, let me think about that, because that's, that's a struggle all the time. I mean, I'm interested in reaching Lincoln obsessives, of which there are people all across the country. <laughs> yeah, there are hundreds of thousands, trust me. I'm at a thing called the Lincoln <laughs> Forum. It's an annual event. Hundreds of people attend, and it's like Lincoln scholarship. It's really kind of amazing. Um, but I also wanted to reach out to uh, ordinary citizens who are thinking about how to respond politically to this moment. I would like progressives to read this book who think or have been told that it is scary or morally wrong to engage with someone who disagrees with them even a little bit. I think that there is value in the engagement um, and you should not feel like that makes you somehow dirty uh, or, or evil to talk to someone who is just very wrong. I would like conservatives to think about the need to build a broader coalition uh, rather than just playing to their base all the time. I think that would probably cause a lot of people to embrace a different kind of politics than maybe they are. Um, I would like uh, everyone to recognize a, a little bit of, of Lincoln's humility, um, that he didn't feel the need to claim he had all the answers all the time, even though he was a really smart guy. Um, and maybe this is a final thing. I want um, ordinary citizens, my friends and neighbors, my family, wh whoever, to think about politics as something that you don't have to make personal, that can be about your interests. And if it is about your interests, you can find something in common with, with another person who has radically different beliefs. Um, and if you can just make it a conversation about interests, you can build coalitions that can focus on the preservation of our institutions through which we mediate all of our differences. You know, one of the questions that I ask all the authors that come through here, and I'll, I'll ask you this question as well, um, because I realized this when I was writing but the book I just finished and, and also my first book, My Vanishing Country. But as someone who follows the politics of the day closely as anyone in, in yourself, how did writing this book change you and uh, change the way you go about your reporting? Or did oh, it? Uh, no, it, it totally did. Although now I want to hear about the book you just finished. Are you going to tell me about that when I finish talking here? Uh, no, I'm not. I, I'll, I'll tell you about it one day soon. It's called <laughs> The Moment. It'll be out next May. So that, okay. I'll tell you about it one day soon. Okay. You, you reach out. You reach out. I want to hear about it. Sure. How did it change me? I mean, all of my history writing has affected the way that I cover the news. I mean, I get, it gives me this long view of things. It affects which news stories I think are important and which news stories are not. Uh, I feel more and more strongly all the time that some really high percentage, maybe 90, 99% of the breaking news that we're told about is not anything you really need to know, uh, is not anything that really adds up to, to anything. 
and that we can be a little more discerning about what we view as important. Um, and this uh, story gave me, uh, in a way that maybe some of the other histories I've written uh, didn't, gave me a little hope, uh, made me feel that I had a way to talk about this moment, made me way, feel that I had a way to talk about the divisions of this moment and what to do uh, with them. I am in a profession where I, no matter what your politics are, my job is to go talk to someone that you consider disreputable, <laughs> you know, that you consider awful or dangerous. I mean, that's my job. I'm supposed to be an intelligence agency for citizens, which means that I have to keep track of your enemies as well as your friends and your adversaries as well as your, your, your friends and the people you admire. And uh, so I try to apply a little bit of Lincoln's style, even in my daily journalism. I want to have real conversations with people. Um, I want to also ask them real questions and call them out on factual inaccuracies and, and other things. But ultimately, I want to have a conversation that citizens will find useful regardless of their political points of view. And Lincoln's story makes me think differently about that all the time. One of the things that I find fascinating, and I think that people will, somebody needs to write about it, is throughout this entire time where there have been assaults over the past, say, since 2015 on many of our pillars of democracy, including yeah. Trump, the only true constant um, in terms of trust in media has been NPR. And I find that to be fascinating. It, uh, from all sides, it's, it's, it's literally the lone uh, entity where both the right and the less left still maintain um, some level of trust, which is... I guess no, thank you. Thank you. I, I think that that's true. Um, we there are a lot of I mean, NPR has this reputation as kind of, you know, a certain kind of liberal or even white liberal uh, kind of hippie sensibility with tote bags and everything else. And that's part of the audience. Yeah. Um, but it's getting to be a more diverse audience, especially the the pod, the podcast up first which is one of the most popular podcasts yeah. in America. You, you're meeting people where they are with that for a long yeah, time. Yeah. I think the term was more ivory tower for NPR. Yeah. yeah podcast no. and everything else, you're meeting people where yeah. they are. Yeah. And the demographics of that podcast almost exactly match the demographics of America. They're very close. Good, um, good. And, and then, so, so, so we're reaching different kinds of, of people. And they're also like more traditional conservatives. We have a big audience in the military, which includes a lot of people who are conservative. We have a big audience in farm communities, rural communities, where there are local public radio stations in the community. And in both of those groups, you have a lot of people who are interested in the wider world, which we cover. So I would like to think that we reach a lot of people. Um, there sometimes have been outlets that's part of their business model to attack the media who will attack us. Uh, and once in a while, I'm sure we also deserve to be attacked. Um, but I, I agree with you and I appreciate you saying it. I think a lot of different kinds of people are tuning in. How can people find and buy the book that is Ooh. out? Well, it's on, it's on Amazon. Uh, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, you can find it, I hope, in your local bookstore. And I hope you support your independent bookstore. There's some awesome ones that I've, I've been able to even visit during the book tour the last few weeks. It's been, been great. Differ, we must. How can people follow your reporting online and catch your shows on NPR? Well, okay, so every, every community in America has a local public radio station, and you can tune right in and support them, but you can also go to npr.org, and you can find uh, the Up First podcast that I mentioned, along with other NPR podcasts on just Apple or anywhere that you get your podcasts. 
Steve Inskeep. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Bakari Sellers Show. And I just say this is one of the more brilliant conversations we have. Thank wow. you so much for coming. Thank in you. Thank show. you. Looking forward to your book now. All right. Thank you so much, brother. Be safe. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.